Welcome to the Coaches Area Podcast, Season 2, hosted by me, Ross Flintoft. It's in association with Tattle Thinker, where the listeners will be able to have full access, all areas, to coaches talking about the beautiful game. This afternoon, my special guest is Stephen Bartholomew. Hiya, Stephen. You all right? Hi there, Ross. I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me on the pod. Brilliant for having on, having you on, and Happy New Year to you and your family. Happy New Year to you. Uh, so we'll kick off the pod. What does football or football coaching mean to you? Thanks, Ross. Well, there's, there's two parts to that question. If I start with the first, football has always been hugely important to me right since I was a kid. I mean, I grew up in the south of England in the 1980s. And when you think back, this was in, in many ways the dark time for football. Crowd violence, English teams banned from European football for five years, which is, you know, really hard to believe now. The fact they couldn't yeah. compete in in the elite European competitions. Then we had crumbling stadiums, dilapidated facilities. We had the the high sword disaster with the terrible fire at, at Bradford City's ground, which killed you know fifty six fans. And of course, a few years later, we had the the tragedy of of Hillsborough as well and yet you know despite that really difficult kind of background i i you know fell in love with the game as a as a seven or eight year old in the uh, in, in the 1980s and from playing in the playground at school with a sponge ball to collecting football stickers at break times or collecting match day programs to getting my first football kit at christmas to when i was a little bit older in life going to Brighton games initially with my dad and then going on my own with my friends from school. This was the old Goldstone ground in, in Brighton, which no longer exists. Uh, and, and all of that, you know, was a massive part of my childhood. And I carried that love for the game with the rest of, with me for the rest of my life. And um, I mean, there's so much to love about football, but if I was to try to sort of boil it down to one thing, it, for me, I guess it's just that that moment, you know, that goal or that moment of outrageous skill that gets you leaping out of your seat. And uh, that's what football means to me. And if I move to the, the second part of your question, what does coaching mean? Well, I guess that's a that's a harder question for me in a way to, uh, to answer because I've never been a coach myself. I'm, I'm just an armchair fan and I stopped playing Sunday league football when I was about 15 or 16. So it's a long time since I was coached by anyone. And I guess a lot's changed, you know, since then uh, anyway. But, you know, if I was to answer your question, for me, coaching at, at every level of the football pyramid is, is first and foremost about improving players individually and collectively. And if you can get this right, you know, improving your players individually and then collectively as a team, then obviously everything else follows from there. But to do it, and you know, you and the listeners will know this better than me, it re- requires a variety of different skill sets, the ability to analyse strengths and weaknesses of your own players and, of course, your opponents, the deep technical and tactical knowledge needed to make the necessary improvements to your players once you've kind of identified you know, perhaps weaknesses in their game, Obviously, communication skills are then vital. Um, it clearly doesn't matter, you know, how good your knowledge of the game is if you can't explain it clearly and simply 
whether that's to a bunch of you know nine-year-old kids or you know one at one end of the pyramid or to your club's new record signing from brazil who doesn't understand much english at the you know the pinnacle of the of the football pyramid no matter where you are as a coach on that pyramid communications is vital and um and when people think of communications, they often fall into the trap of thinking it's a, a one-way process, that communications is telling someone something. Of course, this is true, but it's only part of it. Communications is a two-way street, and it's also about listening. And I think the best coaches are also really good listeners. And, and, and more than that, they're, they're, you know, they're emotionally intelligent. They understand their players. They understand what motivates or or demotivates or constricts their players' ability to perform. And those best coaches, you know, they know how to build belief, how to get that extra discretionary effort to to make your players, you know, to use the old expression, be willing to, to run through a wall for you. And that's what the best coaches have always done. That's what the best coaches do today, whether that's, you know, going back in time to Sir Alex Ferguson or it's what, you know, Pep Guardiola has today, or it's what Emma Hayes in the, in the, in the women's game has today. So, you know, that emotional intelligence and ability to understand your players is really important. And, and then I guess when you think about coaches and good coaches, the best coaches, it's, you know, what they do is they give their teams an identity, an identity built on a core set of principles around how you progress the ball up the pitch, what, patterns you use to hurt teams, how your team defends out of possession, whether it's a high press and a high line or a low block or somewhere in between what your team does in transition. Um, so, you know, also coaching is about having that sense of identity and those principles in play. And then I, I think finally, a, a good coach is a great decision maker. And, and they're making important decisions all the time, whether that's around talent identification or player selection or pre-match tactical setup or in-game adjustments to respond to the game state or substitutions. You know, there's so many decisions that a coach needs to make. And, you know, like I say, I've never coached myself, so I can only imagine what it's like but I've always thought it must be the hardest job in, in sport. One of the most rewarding, but, you know, one of the hardest jobs in sport. And that's why I wanted to write a, a novel about a football coach. Stephen, that's an absolutely brilliant answer to my question. For someone who says they're an armchair fan, I think you've just summed up what football coaching is in about a few minutes, where some people can kind of go off on a tangent and different ends of the spectrum and this, that, you need this, you need that. I believe you've just kind of summed up what football coaching is and how you should be a football coach. So hopefully in the near future, if you wanted to become a football coach, I think you've got all the tools to your disposal um, to be a successful one. Well, that's kind of you to say, Ross. It It, 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 it is you know, a, a brilliant job to, to be a coach is also, as I say, I can only imagine, but I, I kind of believe it's a very hard job, a hard job to, to do well. And I think it's a hard job to do well, no matter where you are on that football pyramid. And maybe in some ways, 
you know, we all think about the elite coaches at the top, but those coaches who are further down the pyramid have it just as hard, maybe even harder, because they don't necessarily have the, the resources to work with that the elite coaches take for granted. They don't have the, the army of assistants or, or a whole dedicated team of performance analysts or you know, sports scientists. So the further you go down the pyramid, actually, I would say that perhaps the harder it gets to be a coach rather than the easier it gets to be a coach. Yeah, most definitely. And what do you think could help the grassroots coaches who are further down the pyramid, like you've said, that don't have the kind of luxury of goalkeeping coaches, sports scientists, nutritionists, um, physios, psychologists? What what do you think, in your, in your own opinion, that could help the grassroots coaches, grassroots players, parents to kind of have something like that, like the pro game? Well, in a word, I would say the internet, because it's all out there. Um, and, and this is something I found when researching for, for my book, you know, that this is unbelievable about how much information is out there. And, and also what a really great community there is, there is out there on the internet and in particular in social media. And I would definitely, you know, uh, cite you as part of that community, Ross, you know, a community of people who are really generous in sharing their knowledge and their insights. So if anyone wants to be a coach or wants to have a career in football, you know, I think it's really achievable now to, to, to teach yourself through the, the resources that you can find online or on podcasts like yours or, or in social media. I mean, every day um, you, you see brilliant training drills being annotated and shared animations of these drills shared on social media by you, Ross, and uh, by many of the other people that I follow on social media. You see people producing great um, blog posts, analysing football matches around the world and, and just by immersing yourself in these kind of materials you, you can learn so much so I, I think that's the great thing um for any any aspiring coach or, or or any coach who's working today there's you can always learn you can always get better and and thanks to the internet but also perhaps more importantly thanks to members of the kind of coaching community there's so much great information out there and you know it, it, it's really um amazing how willing and keen people are to share that with with others so you know so thank you to you ross for letting you do this sort of share the knowledge you know and sort of pass it on to others and it's amazing how many others you know do the same i think the sort of sunday sharing on uh, on, on x that that lee runs is also and, you know, another brilliant example of sharing knowledge, building a kind of uh, a knowledge base within a community. Brilliant. Thanks for your kind words, Steve. Um, like you say, Lee's uh, initiatives, the Sunday Share, has been absolutely brilliant. Again, I share some stuff that I kind of think that is relevant, that's kind of fresh in people's memories from maybe courses I've been on or maybe just like a it's just like a modern trend on, 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 on X. Again, there's some unbelievable people that share stuff um, on, um, 
on Twitter and X, but again, it's probably important to have a filter of what you need, what your players need, what maybe the club need, um, obviously, and then filter it down whether it's, it's good, bad and different, and then just trying things out. Again, football coaching is a lot about trial and error what goes well, what doesn't go well, what can be changed, tweaked, but again, having that kind of filter on what you need to take from it is, is probably your kind of individuality coming out of, of you as a coach, really. Um, and that's what I, I kind of... that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's also not being afraid to ask for help from no. people and even asking for help from from strangers. Yeah. You know, I think that if there's coaches today who want to improve or people who want to enter into the, you know, gain a professional way that as a, as a coach or as a performance analyst, I, I'm sure if they were to reach out to people already in the game or, or further up the pyramid and say, you know, could I have a conversation with you or could I come and shadow you for a period of time? I'm sure more often than not, those people, when you ask them would say, yes, not all of them, yeah. you know, not, not everyone is a, a generous sort of member of the community, but most people are. And I think, you know, if you were to ask people, They'd be more than happy to to share their knowledge because at some point in their own career, someone would have done the same to them. Someone yeah. would have helped them out along the, along their coaching journey, and they'd be. I'm sure most people would just be happy to pay it back. Yeah, definitely. Um, sometimes it's not like you say; it's not always like that, and it's difficult to kind of ask people or go and watch things because people, you know, it's that kind of trusting. It's it's that kind of who who are these people are what they try have they got an agenda, different things like yeah. that. But I, I don't I don't see football is. Anything to do with it stealing, or wanting to know whatever because, all the practices are all the same at any club you go to. It's just that person's individuality and their kind of. Spin on things, um. Where I used to. I used to be involved in the semi-professional side, Brandon United, and I met a Dutch coach there called uh, Bert-Jan Egermans, and, and, and he said, um, Ross, do you know what the secret is in football? And I was thinking about, wow, I haven't really thought about this. And I was expecting for him to come up with this brilliant answer that no one knew apart from him, and he said, the secret is there's no secrets in football. Yeah, I'm sure. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. That's the. That's because the sport is played in the public eye. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, we're going to move on to um, your book now, and could you tell us? Can you tell the listeners that haven't uh, haven't got your book yet? I don't know what your book is about on on X. Tell us about your book you've wrote, Stephen. Thank you, Ross. I will do, and um, I try not to give too many too many secrets away. I try to avoid any spoilers, so I'll, I'll keep this very high level. But it's um, the the book, the half turn, is about a fictional West London football club that dominated English and European football for many years, but has lost its way since the retirement of its long-serving and hugely successful manager a few years before, and, and, and since this former manager retired, a couple of other coaches have come and gone and they've struggled. The recruitment within the club has been poor. 
as a result, the squad is unbalanced and demotivated. The team failed to qualify for Europe the previous season. And midway through this particular season, the head coach is sacked and a young unknown coach is appointed uh, on an interim basis until the end of the season and comes into the club and has set the goal of finishing in the top four and qualifying for Europe. And the, the story is told from the perspective of this interim head coach. And he's a, he's a young unknown. He's a disciple of positional play. He's a protege of Johan Cruyff, who appears briefly in the book in a flashback. Um, the coach has had a lot of success in Croatia, coaching at one of the clubs in Croatia and winning domestic trophies and punching above their weight in European competition, humbling some of the bigger, more famous European clubs along the way. But the step up from coaching in the top flight of football in Croatia to the English top flight and the dysfunctional mess he finds at this club is a massive challenge for him. And on top of all that, he has to to work with a football director, um, a director of football who's a, a legendary former player who also wants the head coach role. And there's this rivalry and there's all the kind of politics between them. And, you know, with the book, um, there, there's sort of two things for me. I've always loved football and I've always loved stories and, and, and storytelling. So I've tried to combine the two. And it felt like, to me, there was a gap. I mean, the closest thing I can think of is David Peace's book, The Damned United. But of course, this is set, well, that was set 50 years ago. And I wanted to write a book that's not about football in the past, but you know, very much about football in the present, about a modern football club and a sport that's a you know, global industry. And I wanted to take the reader behind the scenes so they can discover more about tactics and training and transfers I wanted to sort of celebrate everything that's beautiful about the beautiful game, but also hold a mirror up to the darkest side of um, the world's most popular sport and, you know, highlight things like uh, racism, which is still a problem within the game, and um, the corrupting influence of money as well within the sport. Um, and then, the you know, the sort of final thing to say on the book is that it, it, it's set in... It's set in a kind of parallel universe where the most successful t teams are now clubs like Bury and Chester City, rather than the sort of traditional big six here in in uh, in England. And I wanted to have a very realistic football world, but also one where clubs that have struggled or gone out of business in the past, clubs like Bury and Chester, are now actually thriving in this parallel universe. A bit, a bit like how my own team, Brighton, had a near-death experience in the in the sort of 1990s and are now playing in Europe. Uh, and also this idea of a sort of parallel football universe appealed to me because basically every football fan I know um, ha has kind of inhabited a parallel universe uh, at some point because they're always kind of in this world of what-ifs, you know, uh, if only a shot had gone in rather than hit a post or if a player had not been sent off or injured or if a particular transfer had gone ahead. And the example that just pops into my mind is, you know, what if Roy Keane had uh, gone to Blackburn rather than Man United in, in 1993? And he was so close to doing that, so close to Kenny Dalglish signing him. But in the end, so Alex Ferguson 
managed to you know, convince Keane to come to United. Well, what would have been different in the Premier League from 1993 to 2003 if Keane had gone to Blackburn rather than Man United? So, you know, this world of what ifs and parallel sort of uh, dimensions or parallel universes, I, I thought was really interesting. So I built some of that into the into the book as well. And um, and if anyone's interested, then the, the book is available via Amazon as an ebook and as a uh, paperback. And, and it's early days. It was only published last month. But um, I'm really pleased to say that so far, all the reviews have been, been really positive. Brilliant. And it sounds, like a, it sounds like a good read. So how long did it take you to produce it? And how did you do any research about writing a book? Yeah, thanks. Um, Ross, so it it took me a long time. It took me four years, I guess, from start to finish. And um, you know, writing a book is something I've always wanted to do. But the idea of starting that, having never done it before, and starting with a blank page and, and going from there to a sort of finished book, you know, that idea is really daunting. Yeah. And then, like everyone, you know, my my life is busy. I had a, a, a full time, always, you know, sort of demands of a full time job. I enjoy spending the free time time that I have with my wife and my daughters. Um, but then, I don't know, four years or so ago, I had six months off work between jobs. And while I was looking for that next job, I, I used the time to, to write the first draft for the book. And every morning after the kids had left and gone to school, I'd sit down at my desk and pretty much tell myself, I'm, you're not going to get up until you've written a thousand words. And by the time I did start my next job i had a draft of of a uh, hundred thousand words and you know i have to say that first draft wasn't very good but as other authors have told me that the book is written in the edit not in the first draft and so i did another three or four more drafts over the next three years then of course my my write, writing habits had to change i was back in the world of work i didn't have that luxury of waving goodbye to the kids in the morning and sitting down and writing for three hours. I had to um, get up early at, at the weekends or um, when I went for a, a, a run or walked the dog, I might sort of be writing it in my head or d dictating it into my phone as I was walking the dogs around the, around the street in the evening after work. But slowly, weekend by weekend and dog walk by dog walk, it, it, it took shape to the point that I'm, um, yeah, I'm really happy with it. Um, and you kind of ask, you, you ask that question about you know researching it, and yeah. as I said before, I'm not a coach, and I, ha I have zero coaching experience, and I'm writing a was writing a book about a, an elite coach, so it, it was a challenge for me. But you know, I, I was creating what is a work of fiction, but I also wanted it to be really real, to feel real, to be authentic. Uh, also, I wanted to take the sport that I love seriously and be respectful to it. Um, so, so I did do a lot of research, and and the good news for me is actually the best form of research is is watching football matches and reading about the game. And the good news for me was that you know I've been doing that for thirty five years or more. So I've been doing the research all my life without kind of even knowing it. But even then, that wasn't enough because, like I say, um, to to provide those insights into training uh, transfers and tactics. You know, what goes on behind the scenes in a football club, that that, that is hard. And, and I, it required a kind of extra level of research. But again, a bit like I was saying earlier on, 
the good news for me is that it's all out there on the internet, whether it's videos, whether it's podcasts, whether it's blogs or magazine articles or you know, threads in, in social media. And um, I spent a, a lot of time reading, listening or watching what other people have said or written or, um, about the game or about coaching or about performance uh, analysis. And every time I got to the, a part in the book where I felt I didn't know that aspect of the game well enough, then I would, you know, take the time to, to do some research. And, and then it became a lot easier to write about it. Everything in the book is my own. I wrote it in my own words. But, you know, it's inspired by the research I, that I did. And um, the ideas that other people have shared, as I say, on, on the internet via social media or, or via podcasts. And going along through this process of research, I learned so much about the sport and you know looking at your social media kind of output ross and others in the kind of online sort of or social kind of coaching community it, it's um it taught me to look at the game completely differently you know really opened my eyes to to how the game actually works and how the game works in, in the different sort of four phases of play as well so that was one of the perhaps the best things about writing the book you know i managed to achieve a personal goal that I set myself years ago and never thought I would, would be able to do. So that's quite fulfilling. But also I, I learned so much about a sport that I've loved since I was you know, a small kid and followed for 35 years or more, um, 40 years maybe now. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I started to, to, to really understand that, sp that sport, to understand football on, on a whole new level. And that, that was probably the, the biggest joy of it. How often does uh mindset come into it, Stephen, where you've just you just said there about you were getting up and trying to tell yourself that you needed to write a thousand words and then you've came up with a hundred thousand for your book. So how much is that you have to be in the right mindset to kinda of write those a thousand words. A bit like myself, I have to be in the right kind of mindset to plan a football session. So yeah. how how much is mindset um, kind of, is that really important for writing a book or, or to try to, you know, have a goal of a thousand words each day? It's a great question, Ross. I, I, I think mindset is obviously important with, you know, when you're trying to achieve anything in life, I guess. And I think it's absolutely important, um, a crucial aspect when you're writing a, a book because a, a book is, is a, big project and it can take depending on the individual it can take many months or many years it's not the sort of thing you can do in an afternoon yeah um and, and so like any kind of big challenge or big project uh it, it can feel quite daunting and i guess part of the mindset is breaking down that challenge into smaller parts and then suddenly it starts to, to seem a lot more achievable or, or, or a lot less daunting um part of it is just kind of belief because I was doing something I'd never done before yeah. and so you know you don't know whether you're able to, to do this and I, I kind of liken it I, I've not run a marathon either but I liken it in a way to how I imagine what it's like doing a marathon for the first time um, there's probably probably a lot of doubt you don't think you could go the full distance and then if you you apply yourself you do the training at some point along the way it becomes clear to you you know what I think I can run a marathon now the next question is, but you know, it's not just about getting over the finishing line. I, I want to do a, do a marathon at a good time. 
yeah. and so you have to kind of keep you know keep improving and keep working at it and that was the same with me with the book am i going to get first of all i just didn't know whether i could write a hundred thousand words i managed to achieve that but then i looked back through those hundred thousand words and they weren't very good so i then had to sort of recalibrate my goals my next goal was you know turn these a hundred thousand words into something that's really good something i'm really proud of and and you know i managed to achieve that and, and that took me another couple of years but yeah the mindset and um, it, it is important and breaking it down into small parts is important but also i think recognizing that you're not going to have a perfect day every day and not beat yourself up too much when that's the case yeah because I, I i i suspect there were days where i wrote a thousand words maybe only 10 of them ended up in the book but it's about having that sort of discipline and um, and, and going at it, and that's part of the process because there also be days where you, you know, you, you have a really good, strong, creative output, and you and you maybe maybe half or more of what you've written you know, finds its way into into the into the book. So each day, certainly in that first six months when I was between jobs, you know, turning up, sitting down at the desk, and just going for it really helped. And I also remember reading some advice somewhere from a from an author. Uh, and and he said that there are days where he never feels like writing. So his rule is, I'll, I'll make myself sit down and I'll tell myself I'm just going to write for 10 minutes. And and if at the end of the 10 minutes, I'll set a timer. If I'm still feeling like I don't want to write, well, that's fine. But what you often find is once you get into something, you know, 10 minutes in, you've kind of warmed up and you're feeling good. And it and it kind of carries on from there. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I also found that to be the case because, Nine times out of ten, where I didn't, when I, on those times where I didn't feel like doing it, if I set the ten-minute timer or fifteen-minute timer, by that point I was up and running, and I was still probably at my desk two hours later writing. So, I think mindset, coaching yourself, playing some sort of tri- you know games to sort of trick your mind when you're feeling a bit sort of tired or lethargic or you're not up for it, because uh, you know it, it is important, and I think that's true in anything, whether it's writing the book or or um, in sport, professional or amateur, and I think you know mindset is is crucial. And we we probably make this mistake sometimes. Armchair football fans like me, where we we look at football professional football players, who, and we think, well, they're paid a lot of money. I expect them to turn up in peak condition and to perform. But they're also, in addition to being paid lots of money, they are human beings, and they yeah. you know they've got stuff going on in their mind or in their in their lives, and all of that kind of impact on their on their minds, their mindset, and their performance. So, yeah, mindset's everything. Brilliant. Um, you've called um, the book the, the half turn, and it was since I've been, you know, lucky enough to spend some time with some fantastic coaches through, like, just going to college, going to different football coach and training. Um, it always it, it always came up when you when you were trying to receive the ball. It's it was like it's this old fashioned shout. It's probably still shout now. Get on the half turn, and it was like well, right, okay, like that every time before you receive the ball. Get on the half turn so you can see the defender. You can see the ball, things like that. So it it, it was easy. I just want to know why did you why did you call the book the half turn? Yeah, I mean for me it it's putting myself in the shoes of the the main character in the book this fictional head coach and for him it's a technical ability 
in a player that he values above almost anything else. You know, that ability to to receive the ball under pressure with their back foot, with an open body stance, you know, facing across the pitch, especially in those sort of deep lying areas, because this coach is a big believer in playing out from the back. So whether it's a, it's a, um, a, a six or an eight that's dropped deep, or when perhaps, I don't know, his, his centre-backs have split, he wants someone who can receive the ball under pressure, um, who, who they're scanning across their shoulder, they, they can receive the ball on their back foot and then progress it up the pitch, either by carrying it themselves or by playing that quick, you know, sort of line-splitting pass. So, so that was a big part of it. It's, it's about what the coach is obsessed with. But also, for me as a football fan, and so I guess I've sort of learned partly through writing the book, is that, you know, it's a technical aspect of the game that's not just really important, but actually I think was pretty rare in English football if you go back 20 or 30 years ago. And so much about football is the same now as it was 20 or 30 years ago, but you know, so many things have changed, have progressed or developed. And if you go back 20 or, 20 or 30 years ago, I don't think there was many people in the English game, English football players in particular, who could take the ball on the half turn under you know close pressure. I can think of someone like Joe Cole, yeah. um, when he was at you know uh, particularly when he's at Chelsea, mm-hmm. you know he had it. But it's almost as if it kind of came natural to Joe Cole. I don't feel like it was kind of coached into him. No. Whereas now you know the quality and the standard of coaching throughout the the football pyramid in England, but particularly in Premier League academies means it's one aspect that, that is coached now more and more. And like you say, you're, you're hearing it all the time from you know from other coaches when they're working with players or working with young players. And we're, we're now seeing this come through. Coaches have been doing this perhaps for 10 or 15 years in, in, in English game. And we're now seeing the output of that. You, you look at someone like Phil Foden, Mason yeah. Mount, Jude Bellingham, you know, yeah. it's part of their game, um, and they're so good at it. Um, and it and it feels like it's a it's a technical ability that's been coached into players rather than a a sort of natural ability that one or two players have, but they were very much the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, brilliant. So we're going to get into your um, armchair analysis now. So who are your favourite coaches to watch on the TV and why? Yeah. Um, yeah, good question. I'll go for both past and present, I think, and I'll, okay. I'll pick out three or four. Um, I mean, there's obviously so many I could mention, but we, we don't really have so much time today. So let me go with go with four. I'll go with Guardiola. I'll go with Dalglish. I'll go with Ancelotti uh, and, and Roberto De Zerbi from my own club, Brighton. I mean, they're the four that I probably admire the most uh, rather than, you know, calling them favourite. Yeah. I think... For different reasons, Pep, because I love the whole philosophy of positional play. I also love how he came to England. You know, his story is amazing. He came to England. He stuck to his principles. Everyone said he would have to change his approach to suit the English game, but he's changed the English game forever. Yeah. And I, I, I walk my dog through the local park on a Saturday afternoon and often stop to watch the football game. And the, you know, these are people here at the very base, you know, right at the bottom of the football pyramid. 
um, people just playing it for the love of the game. And yet here they are, and you'll see from time to time, you'll see people playing out from the back on this muddy pitch, you know, in a local park. Yeah. Or you'll see the see a fullback moving into the interior. And, you know, that would have been unimaginable before Pep arrived. So not only has he achieved a lot, and some people would say, well, you know, he had a lot of money and he, you know, all, all the rest of it, and that may or may not be the case. But he, in addition to what he achieved with City, he, he's had that long-lasting impact, not just at the Premier League, but, you know, all the way down through the football pyramid. So that, that, that's pretty amazing, I would say. Then if you go back in time, I would say Dalglish. I mean, he, he won the league, I think, three times with Liverpool from memory. Mm-hmm. He built an unbelievable team. He inherited a team that was coming to the end of its kind of peak. He rebuilt it, brought brought, uh, brought in Barnes and Beardsley, and you know that was an unbelievable side. It, he would have won more uh, titles, I think, with Liverpool. Again, we're straying into sort of parallel universes here and what ifs. But if he had stayed on as a manager, I'm sure he would have stayed. Um, it, sorry, I'm sure he would have won more titles. I'm sure he would have rebuilt the team um, again. And if you look at some of the players that he signed for Blackburn when he when he moved to Blackburn or some of the players he tried to sign when he was at Blackburn, had he, had he still been at Liverpool, Liverpool would have probably been a bit more successful club in the 1990s than they were. But then, of course, you know, Dan Cleish, um left because the, the, you know, the, the emotional stress, I think, of dealing with the aftermath of Hillsborough was too much for him, which is, you know, completely understandable. Yeah, and then definitely. he returned to the game. He took Blackburn up from the second division. And we all know how hard it is to get out of the championship. But, you know, he yeah. managed to get them up from the second division. I think he did it via the playoffs as well. So it wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. And then three years later, having signed Shearer, you know, he won the Premier League with Shearer and Sutton up front. And then I think he even finished second with Newcastle. So, you know, here's a guy who won the Premier League with... Oh, sorry, he won the league, not the Premier League. He won the, he, yeah, he won the Premier League with Blackburn and he won, he won the old English league with Liverpool. So he won the league to, uh, with two different clubs and came close with Newcastle. Um, but then, you know, coming back to the man, I admire him perhaps ultimately for how he acted after the Hillsborough disaster. Um, so a, a great man and, of course, also an unbelievable player as well. And then I admire Carlo Ancelotti um, a lot. Um, and in many ways, he's the sort of polar opposite to, to Guardiola. Um, it, and Ancelotti's got many, many strengths and he's achieved almost everything in the game. In his one titles in what? Italy, England, Spain... France, he's won the Champions League several times. He won Real Madrid's sort of mythical 10th Champions League title that they were striving for for many, many years. But I think one of his key strengths is his tactical flexibility. Yeah. You know, he, whereas Pep, has, Pep innovates and changes, but he's got, he's got a way of playing football. Whereas Ancelotti's got flexibility and sort of, in a way, almost sort of, Gears his gears his tactics, gears his approach to to games around the players he has in his squad, and he's unbelievable. I think at getting the best out of big players and his man management. So, yeah, it's the kind of 
complementary kind of skill set, this kind of you know, emotional intelligence and getting the best out of big players, adapting, um, adapting with the way he plays his football so he can get the best out of Cristiano Ronaldo when Ronaldo was at Madrid or get the best out of Cristiano Ronaldo when Cristiano Ronaldo was at a certain stage in his own career and when he was, you know, starting to lose a bit of his pace and things like that. So the tactical flexibility to get the, the, the very best out of the very best players, what I admire Ancelotti. And then just quickly, Roberto De Zerbi, I, I admire him. Um, and his story's not finished yet, but I admire him for transforming Brighton. Um, he, he inherited a Brighton side that played nice football, but generally didn't hurt enough teams. Yeah. He turned that same Brighton side into an attacking, free-scoring and highly entertaining team and uh, managed to finish sixth in the league and um, top, our, top our group in, in, uh, in, in Europe. So I, I admire him for that. Brilliant. You've touched on Brighton. What is it like supporting Brighton now with De Zerbi? I know you've, got, you've had Chris Hewton... You've had Graham Potter. Now you've got Roberto Deserby. What's it like now going to the ground and you know that overall support for Brighton? Yeah, it's brilliant. I'm living the living the Brighton dream at the moment. I, I waited a long time for it, um, and it means it's probably it matters all the more. Um, you know, because I've definitely seen the lows as well as the highs. I can remember. I'm old enough to remember the 1983 FA Cup final. Probably one of the first games I watched on TV. And um, you know the heartbreak of nearly winning it should have winning you know, we should have won in the dying moments of the game, and then the heartbreak of getting stuffed in the replay. Um, I remember going to watch Brighton play Spurs in a testimonial match in 1990, and Gaza and Gammy Lineker were playing, and, and that was you know amazing for, for me as a as a young kid. And then I followed the club as the um, the owners sold the stadium and as the club sort of tumbled down through the divisions, it finished second to bottom of the old third division in 1997 on goal difference. Um, so very close to being relegated into the non-league. It finished second to bottom again the following season, albeit with a 15-point cushion that time over Doncaster. Um, in that kind of time, I remember travelling to home games in Gillingham's ground in Kent going to away games and Leighton Orient and Barnet and Fratton Park and Oldham and, you know, great small grounds and bigger clubs who've, come, who've sort of fallen on hard times. Um, and then I kind of watched the slow climb back through the divisions and the consolidation in the Premier League under Chris Hewton and, uh, and Graham Potter, both of whom are very good coaches. And then, as I say, you know, finishing sixth and playing in Europe and topping the group. So it has been a journey. Um, the highs definitely mean more when you experience the lows, and um, it's hard to imagine it could be any better for a Brighton fan than it is right now. Brilliant. Okay, so we've got some time left. Um, in, we're going to go into some uh, quick fire questions that are kind of new for the pod. Are you ready? I'm ready. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, best goal you've seen live? Uh, Ali Johan Bash for Brighton. It was a bicycle kick against Chelsea on New Year's Day in 2020. Brilliant. Uh, worst game you've seen live? As a Brighton fan, I've got quite a few to choose from, but I would have to go <laughs> with um, way to Brentford, I don't know, 2001, 2002. We got uh, stuff 4-0 in the pouring rain. Messi or Ronaldo? Uh, 
Messi's the technically superior, I would say, and he's won the World Cup, but Ronaldo did it in three different leagues, so I go with, with Ronaldo. If you could change one rule, what would it be? Uh, can I be greedy and go for two? I'll say automatic yellow card for any tactical foul to stop a counter-attack, uh, and an automatic yellow or maybe even a red for any player who swears at or abuses the ref. I just think this will make a massive difference in the, in the sort of non-professional park football. Okay. Would you rather Brighton finish top four or win Europa League? Well, I know Wenger used to call top four a trophy, but I'll go for the Europa League. Brilliant. Uh, Stephen, that is fantastic. Love hearing about the book, your football coaching experience, um, about your favourite coaches why you support Brighton and I'm, and I'm sure the listeners will absolutely love um, listening to, to this pod um, thanks very much for your time thank you very much for coming on because you could have been doing something with you, with your family but you've nearly had 40-45 minutes with me um, so thanks very much for that my pleasure Ross thank you very much for, for having me I've really enjoyed it